Hello and welcome to Climate Change, Why Haven't We Solved It Yet? A brand new podcast from the University of East Anglia. I'm Ayushi Avasti, an energy economist and PhD student at UEA. When people talk about climate change, they often think of technology as a silver bullet. They think we just need enough solar panels and wind turbines and we will be okay. Recently, people have been talking about hydrogen to power trucks and cars, and a New York Times article has provoked a lot of debate about it. However, we rarely ask, is all this enough? What happens if we exhaust the 36 billion tons of carbon budget that we have been left with? That's a discussion that I had with Professor Corinne Lecquere in our first podcast, and you can still go back and listen to that one. But that was episode one. We're now at episode two. My guest today is Dr. Nem Won, who researches on technology that can remove carbon from the atmosphere. She's a senior lecturer at the University of East Anglia, and she's very kindly agreed to explain all of this to us. Here's my chat with her. Enjoy. Welcome, Dr. Nem Won, to this podcast. Thanks for being here with us. So before we get into the deeper questions, I want to know that how did you get here? How did you how did you get to learning and teaching about climate change? So I studied geography as my undergraduate degree at the University of Edinburgh. And then once I finished that, I was really interested in climate change and I looked around online and there was this place called the Tyndall Centre for climate change research and it was so like I was like wow wouldn't it be amazing if I'm older if I could ever work there and it wouldn't be amazing to be involved in like the IPCC that were my two goals like finishing my undergraduate degree I was like that would be amazing and I managed to get a PhD here at the University of East Anglia working um, and associated my PhD with the Tyndall Centre and I then became a Tyndall Centre uh, postdoctoral fellow so after I finished my PhD and I'm a lecturer with the Tyndall Centre so that worked out well um I definitely wow. like finishing my degree couldn't have imagined that I thought that was unattainable and I even went to an IPCC expert meeting near the end of my PhD and I've been a co-author on a chapter of the last IPCC report the previous one and so all of those little goals I had like finishing thinking wouldn't that be like they felt like far off and impossible really but um yeah I got here so that's cool Oh, wow. Yeah. So I, I think you glossed over it. But then as, even as a PhD, you ended up working with the IPCC. So that's very, very impressive. I think near the end of it. Yeah. So the work that I did there wow. was quite a seminal piece of work around this idea of um, geoengineering, of ways to remove carbon dioxide from the atmosphere or ways to reflect sunlight back to space. We did this really seminal uh, like assessment of what mm-hmm. could contribute. And that got really highly cited and picked up. So I was like one of the most junior people at that meeting. But it was very cool. I was quite intimidated by being there. But it was very cool too. It was like an, an expert meeting, like a small bit that contributed towards other stuff. Okay. So, and, and did you enjoy that? Was it more intimidating? Was it more enjoyable? Uh, it was. It was good. I mean, I did. I did had seen a number of the academics who were there at like conferences during my PhD. So it wasn't like the a lot of the people there weren't unfamiliar so that um uh, but it was really interesting to be exposed to the process when you're trying to on an expert meeting you're trying to like you know kind of summarize and bring together what everyone knows about an emerging area of science and an emerging area of climate change science and so uh so it's it's very two-way learning which i think is quite cool right because you're finding more stuff about from other people there's always more to learn in academia so that was really um that was really quite cool 
Wow. Okay. That's that's. Thank you for sharing that. That's a, a very interesting experience for also my audience. So our, the previous episode, we spoke to Corinne Lecare, and she explained to us about carbon cycles and carbon budgets. And she said we have 36 billion tons left. And she was like, "Oh, it's just a number. It's a terrifying number." And I looked it up, and we have something like 25 years to exhaust it. But do we have the technology right now in our arsenal to limit temperature rise? Yes, we do. Is my we my simple? Yes, we do. <laughs> oh, um, that's it then. <laughs> I think there are some bits that are harder to than others. So we talk about trying to decarbonize, trying to take the carbon out of everything in the energy system, right? So I think we like you know like that we want to switch off coal and switch to more renewables in the way that we generate electricity. And you've broadly got like a handful of things that you need to think about. So how do we decarbonize our electricity? How do we stop relying on fossil fuels to generate our electricity? And we've got a range of different so. It's not just wind or solar. You might in different places have micro hydro. You might have, you know, um, there is a bit of nuclear power that contributes a nice base load to that. So that's just kind of chundering along in the bottom. And, and there's some arguments over that, the role there. You'll find that in different places in the world, there'll be different combinations of things that will meet your how to generate your electricity so certain countries have the geography that allows them to do lots of say um, geothermal in Iceland or to use um, I can't think of the word now. My brain's just escaped me. But hydropower, there we go. So like in Switzerland and stuff. So there's there's, there's uh, countries that have got that kind of elevation. Norway, you know, they can do a lot with that. Some places are sunnier than others. They're going to have more solar. So it's a different mix depending on where you are in the world. But there is lots of different options. That's what's cool about taking the fossil fuel out of electricity is there's lots of different options. So you get to mix and match depending on the geography of your country, the infrastructure, the level of development. You can choose what you need. So then we have to think about the other things. Transport. Now, that's about a third of our emissions is transport. So... As we know, we can go electric for our cars or we can use biofuels. So Brazil and the US have had a longer history of using biofuels either mixed in with the fossil fuels. So you don't even notice, you just put the same stuff in your car. Like you just squeeze the handle, out comes the stuff. You don't realize how much of that is a bio, um, a bioethanol, like a, a bio coming from a crop, either corn in uh, the US or usually sugarcane in um, Brazil. Or we go electric. Um, so we're seeing that in the UK, we're seeing electric take up more of a market share now, you know, new electric vehicles, we have rules about phasing out the selling of petrol and diesel cars. So we kind of have an answer for cars, it's just going to take a bit of time, more consumer confidence with the cars and better infrastructure. But it does get a bit sticky when we come to heavy goods vehicles, so big lorries and trucks, the heavy clues in the name heavy goods vehicles so um the size of the batteries needed to do that either needs a big innovation in batteries or maybe using hydrogen fuel cells so there's bits of research going on across the country in the uk at the moment and elsewhere globally looking at using hydrogen as a fuel to do that kind of heavy lifting stuff so uh, heavy goods vehicles lorries and trucks and trains there's some work trying to look at hydrogen trains or you obviously can have electric trains but in some places you can't put the infrastructure in for electric trains. So you might want to replace your diesel trains with a hydrogen train. And so that's kind of doable by 2050s. The one that's sticky on transport is aviation. Mm -hmm. Takes a lot of energy to go against gravity and get a ton of people in a tin can with wings on up in the sky. And then it's the going up in the sky that's your problem. Floating around at the top, there's not too bad. And then coming down again. So we use top grade fossil fuels to do that and a lot of it. So flying is always a problem because of that, right? We just 
burn through a lot of fossil fuels to do it. Uh, the longer the flight, the bigger the problem. So long haul flight, always a problem. Uh, so there are some ideas that short haul could go electric. So really short hoppy flights that you might have within a country might be doable by 2050. But um, by 2050, our current understanding is long haul flights will still need to be fossil fuel. So you've got two ways of tackling that. Reduce the number of flights you take and or try and mop up some of those emissions by using a separate technology of carbon dioxide removal to take the, the emissions back out of the atmosphere, if you like. So we've covered electricity, we've covered transport, and then the other one is the kind of fuel we use um, to the the power we use maybe to heat our homes or cool our homes, depending on which part of the world you're in. If that's electric, that's okay, you've decarbonized it. If you're using a solid fuel, maybe not so much. And then how we power some of our ind industries. So some industries are so big that they directly burn fossil fuel, like coal, for example, um, like mm -hmm. iron and steel. So um, again, for those industries, it's really hard to find another fuel to replace that. And so there are people looking at ways to capture the CO2 that would have come off from burning that fossil fuel, capture it and then store it deep underground. So that's um, carbon capture and storage. So, yeah, I think we've covered the major sectors. So electricity, yeah. generation, transport and then these kind of heavy industries. Oh, and the other one in terms of emissions that's really hard to not get to by 2050 is agriculture. And this is mostly coming from the non-CO2 greenhouse gases, so methane and nitrous oxide coming from principally. So a bit of it comes from uh, the way that we produce, say, rice in terms of uh, the methane coming from paddies. But a lot of it is coming from fertilizer use and also from uh, the waste products from animals as well and so um, dealing with the kind of methane and nitrate emissions from fertilizer use and from growing livestock and livestock for dairy and so they are they're really hard they're kind of quite unsquishable we haven't got any good ways of dealing with that again other than less so less meat consumption less dairy consumption that will reduce your emissions there are some innovations we could do in terms of how we rear our animals um, there are some innovations in the feed we give them to reduce the amount of methane they burp out for example Everyone thinks it's farting, by the way. Everyone thinks that the ruminant <laughs> animals, it comes out the back end. It doesn't. It comes out their mouths. It's the way that they break down the grass in their stomach. They mm -hmm. burp methane. And it's a real tricky problem, that one. And so, yeah, so what you get left with in 2050, your problems are some of this leftover heavy industry, mostly aviation and then emissions from agriculture. So they're tricky. But everything else, we have the tools in our arsenal, as you put it, to reduce our emissions. Okay. So just to unpack your answer a little bit. So you pivot at 2050 because that's where our target of the net zero emissions are. Yeah. And Professor Lukeri, she explained to us a little bit about what net zero targets really are. Mm -hmm. Some of the answers, let's unpack some of the answers. So you mentioned nuclear, yes. which, often is, uh, which often is not met with a lot of happiness on mm -hmm. the green side people who are um, climate warriors. I, I can't find a better word. For good um, reason, though. It's not, mm -hmm. it's not carbon neutral, particularly if you take into consideration having to deal with the waste material at the length of time you have to deal with the waste material and the construction of a nuclear power site. It's also not usable. Um, nuclear is not something every country can have because of the problems with the... Mm. Exactly, with the way that you can misuse nuclear. And so it's only a handful of countries that have it as a capacity. It has got a big carbon footprint still, not in the how you generate the kind of per minute or per hour electricity generation from it, but in the construction of all the concrete needed to make it. And then all of the associated, what we call kind of life cycle impact of dealing with the waste as well. So that's 
quite justifiably why a number of people are not so keen on it. It tends mm -hmm. to get used in the UK context as like a little bit, like 20% of our electricity just trundling along all the time. Because what nuclear does that's mm -hmm. quite good is it's there all the time. It's not one you can like turn down and turn up like gas. You can mm -hmm. like light another turbine for the gas and if you need more like when it gets colder or when everyone turns on the kettle at the same time you know the peaks and troughs you have during the day and over the year when people use different amounts of electricity so the other thing obviously is your wind and your solar sometimes we have sunny days some days we have cloudy days some days you have windy days and still days so what your nuclear is doing is just trundling along at the bottom giving you the same amount of reliable what you might call base load power all the time and your mm -hmm. other genuinely carbon neutral uh, renewables like your genuinely renewables um are, are kind of a bit more intermittent and so there could be innovations in the future about how we could kind of use the kind of extra renewable energy we have at some times and then have it available at the times when it's not sunny or the wind's not blowing as strong so that would be about battery or about um different forms of storing that right to try and mm -hmm balance out that you've got to match up that's the big game the national grid do all the time is balance up mm -hmm. people needing electricity is like goes up and down during the day and up and down during the year and they've got to balance that with provision and so um yeah you're quite right to highlight that nuclear is quite contentious to some other people think it's a great idea and you can see there's a lot you can see why that debate exists because of the waste because of the footprint involved in the constructing it because of the risks associated with it if there was problems and because it's not actually available to all countries due to um, the potential misuse of some of the waste products. Right. Is that helpful? Okay. Yeah, yeah, so it's it's environmentally not great, it's a little problematic still, but uh, for people who are trying to balance the grid, uh, it's a good friend to them. It provides a little minimum bit Yes, it's providing that 20% of the UK electricity, mm -hmm. generally speaking, it's around 19 to 21% each year for the last last bunch of years. So it's providing that consistency for now. Obviously, in France, it's a lot higher. They have a lot more nuclear. Yeah. Um, Germany has a lot less. So there's there's different um, countries' interpretations, but that's the role it plays in the UK. Definitely. Right. Okay. That's very interesting. Like in India, 20% for nuclear would be a very, very high number. We have about uh, one or two percent of uh, electricity, gen maybe five actually, generated from nuclear. So, so one thing um, to watch, anybody who's interested in this energy stuff, is when you're reading about stuff and listening to other podcasts and you're getting confused why sometimes people talk about it being 20% and other times a much smaller number, definitely UK context. Mm -hmm. Always got to listen out for if they're talking about electricity generation, 20%, mm -hmm. or total energy, right? So in the mm -hmm. UK, electricity is only currently about a third of our energy use mm -hmm. hence why others you'll have people listen to a debate where you're like why do you keep saying something like five or six percent and you keep saying 20 percent? why is this different and that's part yeah. of the reason one person's talking about the whole energy system the other person's just talking about the fraction that does electricity yeah so that's my that's a little top tip for all those people that's, who are interested in that subject um, yeah thank you for that tip if i may add but sometimes, especially in developing countries, they also just talk about how much capacity has been constructed. Mm. So you might have 20 megawatts, but then you use only about half of it to generate electricity, or you're not yes. able to power it through. So that's a yeah. third so confusing angle. Definitely, definitely. And you see that. So what the, the stats, the 19, the 21% is the, the UK provides data on basically what it used last year called the 
it's a UK digestive energy uh, dukes. Um, uh, the digestive UK energy, I can't remember what the S is for. Um, they produce it each year. And so they're the kind of numbers that, that in my mind is about that. So that again is not capacity. That was what was actually generated. So you're completely right. So capacity was always a bigger number, but you might not always have it turned on because again, we're dealing with this variation day to day so like in india it might be a big surge of demand from ac for example mm -hmm. on really hot days whereas here you tend to see in the uk and te other temperate countries you'll see um a big surge in demand in the winter because mm -hmm. of the heating of homes right and also when it gets very dark so the further north you are you need your electricity your lights and things are on for longer part of the day the further towards the equator you are there's less you know so that that changes within the seasons as well right the kind of need for those so stuff that have that you need all the time are like you know um and like refrigeration is there the whole time right. you know you have the same amount your fridge freezer in your home will take the same amount of electricity all the time but needing more ac on a hot day needing more heating on a cold day right and when the season is such that it gets darker earlier you'll have your lights on for longer versus you know the height of summer in the uk where it doesn't really get dark till 10 or whatever nine or ten so they're right. the kind of differences yeah. that give you these patterns through the day and give you these patterns through the year that you've got to manage in terms of supply and demand. Right. OK, so that's thank you for explaining that to us. So now maybe we jump into your expertise, so which is carbon removal technologies. Yep. And you explained a little bit about it. But so are we right in interpreting that all the technologies we have are will not it's in some sense not enough because we still need to remove some carbon from the atmosphere. Yeah, so like I said before, there are some industries that yeah, there's not a, you can't like switch out the fuel for a different one. So some of these heavy industries, like the way we make iron and steel, you're probably going to still have to keep burning fossil fuel to power that production. But it, what you can do is you can add carbon capture and storage to that. There might be some chemical processing where ordinarily CO2 would be released, carbon dioxide would be released to the atmosphere, where we could use carbon capture and storage to, to capture that. So what we're talking about is a basically just a bit of chemical engineering. You have either a liquid or a solid substance that loves to grab hold of CO2. Right. So you've got CO2 in a, in a flue gas, like in a pipe, just in some air in a pipe or um, as we'll talk about later, maybe just out in the open atmosphere. But you've got this um, volume of air or um, a kind of air with a high amount of CO2 in it because it's in some part of a process. And you put it past either through this liquid or you put it past this solid substance that just wants to the chemistry of that substance wants to just grab hold of the CO2 like like nick it out of the air that's passing over it right and then you take that away and it, all you have to do is warm it up and it will release that co2 and so you can cap that's a way just like a chemical engineering way that you can separate off co2 from say a flue gas so the gas is coming say out of the chimney stack if you like of a power plant now this is not a new idea you see whenever we hematically seal humans into tin cans we need this so on a submarine and on International Space Station, us human beings sit around breathing out CO2 the whole time. So if we hematically sealed a bunch of humans in a space and waited long enough, we'd all get very poorly and die. Because you need to be able to recycle and get rid of that CO2 because it builds up and then your body doesn't like it if that concentration of CO2 is too high. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and so um, so this you know we the the kind of chemistry to capture CO2 out of air we have and we've used for a long time. We also use it already in chemical processing when we could take gas like methane out of the atmosphere the kind of gas that you cook on um, when you take it out of the ground sometimes it's got impurities in it that you need to clean out and one of the impurities in methane which is ch4 is co2 
carbon dioxide. And so we use this to process. So a lot of the carbon capture and storage technology experience we have in the world it comes from just the processing of natural gas, of the gas that you cook with. And if you're in the UK, your boiler usually runs on. Right. So we know how to do this stuff. We use it in the space. We use it at different scales. It's just applying that technology on a much bigger scale. And so, um, so that's useful because we kind of know how to do it already. But when we capture this, so if you put this carbon capture and storage technology onto, say, a gas powered power station, right, gas fired power station or a coal fired power station, you're never going to capture all of the CO2. You're only going to get between 80 and 95 percent of it. So what you will do overall is turn that big carbon emitter into a very low fossil fuel emission, right? But okay. it's not zero. So this is important. So when you put the CCS technology, carbon capture and storage onto fossil fuel power, coal or mm -hmm. gas, you will massively reduce the emissions. It will also make that power you've generated from that process more expensive and less efficient. So it has quite a penalty. It's why we don't do it so far. It makes it more expensive and less efficient. You're going to get less energy out for the amount of coal you put in because you're having to use about a third of the energy to do this capturing and storage part. But it's okay. so that that's an important it's why you don't see loads of these places at the moment. There's about 18 large scale CCS plants globally, and they are mostly used to capture CO2 either from a power plant or in this natural gas processing I talked about. So cleaning up the gas um, and then they're actually often used to push more oil out of the ground. So again, not <laughs> carbon friendly. It's not what we want. No, it's called Enhanced Oil Recovery and it's done a lot in the US. And so, so the good news is we have the skills, the technology, the engineering to do it. The bad side for climate right now is that it's not resulting in any emissions <laughs> reduction or removal because you're just using it to like force more oil out from the ground. And that's just the economics, I'm afraid. That's just the market because no one's going to pay mm -hmm. you to capture CO2. No one's going to you know, no one's going to want their power plant to be more expensive and less efficient, like I just said about putting the CCS on. And the reason people went, you've got to process natural gas anyway before you're allowed to put it down the gas pipes for people to use. So that's got to happen. Um, and then they take that CO2 they've captured and they go and stuff more oil out of the ground because there's a value in the oil that you get. Right. So it's not carbon sensible at the moment, it, um, but it's good because you've got the skills and the technology and the knowledge of how to quickly change that to be something that can remove CO2 from the atmosphere. But it's not happening. At, there's only a handful of places where it's actually a net removal of carbon at the moment because of that. Does that make sense? So right. like the technology's there. You were like, do we have the tools? We have the tools. Right. right now what we don't have is the economics and the incentives to turn that from, I want to burn more oil into, I want to stop using fossil fuels, reduce my emissions on everything that still needs some fossil fuels for now, and, um, and then go further and use it to take CO2 out of the air. So, okay, so but then, but everybody's talking about net zero emissions. The targets are net yes. zero. Yep. So, so there are people who want negative emissions. Yes. So if we think all together, so we talked about do we have the tools to get to decarbonizing? I'm like, yeah, basically everything apart from your aviation and your agriculture and some of these leftover heavy industries. And part mm -hmm. of how we'll get to like a 95% reduction is using some of this carbon capture and storage technology on like iron and steel or on some chemical processing or on mm -hmm. a little bit of fossil fuel still maybe. Um, you might use it actually to make that hydrogen that you might need in a train or a bus. That's, um, there's different ways of making hydrogen, blue hydrogen with a fossil fuel with carbon capture and storage or green hydrogen with a biomass base, for example. Okay. So there's different ways of making your hydrogen. So that matters. So 
But to actually get to zero, net zero, when we've got these like residual, these like leftover emissions that are really hard to get rid of, right, at that last step, that's mm -hmm. when a different set of technologies that are using some of this CCS technology that we've just talked about, mm -hmm. using that, using it in a different way to give us a net removal of CO2 from the atmosphere and storing it deep underground. So there's two main types. One is called biomass energy with carbon capture and storage, and the other one is called direct air capture and storage. So BEX and DAX. So BEX, biomass energy with carbon capture and storage, rather than putting your carbon capture and storage technology where you capture the CO2, you split it out. You then, by the way, just like squeeze it, uh, compress it and dehydrate it, take some water out. And you go and stick it underground, deep underground, you don't mm -hmm. use it to force any oil out. You just stick it deep underground in old oil and gas wells, leave it there, or in a certain type of rock formation called a saline aquifer. Or you could stick it in basalt, but that's not worth getting into. Uh, right here. Uh, so what you do, so rather than putting that on fossil fuel powered, so like mm -hmm. gas or CCS, you put it on biomass electricity generation or a biomass. So you put it on something that started out with biomass. So what you means is that during the lifetime of that plant, growth it's taken co2 out of the atmosphere when you've burnt it or digested it or whatever you've done as a kind of energy step um say let's for simplicity let's imagine just electricity generation right so rather than a gas powered electricity generation power station that you'd imagine power station to look like imagine we were putting biomass in like they do in yorkshire um, there is a company called drax d-r-a-x drax um that use um biomass to fuel power station there if we then put that carbon capture and storage technology on the back of that process then the co2 that was happy in the atmosphere got taken up by that biomass as it was as it grew we've then taken that biomass and burnt it to drive our turbine to generate our electricity and we've captured the co2 in that process and stored it you've ended up the net result of that is to have taken co2 out of the atmosphere because the plants took the CO2 up, you've burnt them, which releases the CO2 normally back to the atmosphere. But rather than allowing it to be released back to the atmosphere, you caught it and compressed it and stuffed it back underground. Okay. Stuff being the technical term. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's not the technical but, term. <laughs> but so, uh, okay, contextually, I'm going to ask this question. The time when, for example, the US moved to natural gas and yep. it was talked about the bridge fuel that before yeah, we can yep. actually move to renewables, we move to natural gas as a little bridge. And then a, a lot of conversation these days is about leakage of methane, natural gas is essentially mm -hmm. methane, so leakage of methane back yep. to yep, uh, the atmosphere. So what I'm understanding from this technology, BEX, is that we are taking it from the atmosphere and then putting it deep underground. Yes, and in between, um, and in between that, we're generating some electricity, which is useful, or you might generate a transport fuel. So of all the, say, say your, your biomass took up two, whatever, like uh, two kilograms or gigatons, we don't have a volume, but like took up two units of carbon, you'd probably only mm -hmm. store about one unit of carbon underground. By the time you've taken into account every step of that process where you could have, like you just talked about that leakage. So you could think about the transport, you know, the energy you've had to use along the way and you're not gonna mm -hmm. capture all of it. I told you before the CCS only ever captures between 80 and 90% depending, right? Yeah. So, you never, so by the time you've summed up everything over the whole life cycle, say we took up two units of carbon out of the atmosphere and turned it into plant, you'd probably only be storing about one. 
So about half the CO2 that was there in the plant standing in the field or the tree standing in the field would end up being um, stored underground. But it's still removing emissions, whereas CCS on gas just reduces them, reduces them, but not to zero. Right. right. So. So this is why we need this ability to remove them. The other one, direct air capture, just captures CO2 straight out of the atmosphere. The problem is that you need, it's quite energy intensive and it doesn't give you anything like electricity or transport fuel. It just uses energy to do that. So direct okay. air capture just uses the same principle with that same kind of chemical engineering principle, captures the CO2, you can do the same thing, you compress it and you pipe it deep underground and it has directly removed CO2 from the atmosphere, but you've got to make sure that you're powering that direct air capture unit with a renewable fuel, otherwise right. it's not, right? Amazing. And and it's just costing you. When you do BECs, you generate electricity, which is a useful service to us human beings here on planet Earth, right? The yeah. DAC is just taking CO2 out. The useful service it's providing is to remove carbon. But you might need a mix of DACs and a DAC and the BECs and, and also some of the land-based methods of removal, like more tree planting, habitat restoration, you know, changes in the way we farm. There's ways we can enhance the sink, the natural sinks into the into um, the land of carbon, the natural removal processes that happen on the land. And you might need all of those things, a mix of them, a mix of different ones uh, to help us to get to that net zero. That mm -hmm. group helps us to balance out those residual emissions, particularly agriculture and aviation that I talked about at the beginning. So then we move on and we think about how do we get to net negative? And mm -hmm. that is doing more of the carbon dioxide removal, essentially. And making sure that your any direct air capture you have is powered by a renewable or low carbon source and yeah and making right. sure as well you must make sure that your biomass is sustainably sourced if it's unsustainably sourced you could end up doing more damage than good so if you deforest tropical rainforest to grow a biomass crop <laughs> to power bex plants uh -huh. you'd be like look at me i'm putting a megaton of carbon down underground give me a gold star and some money please and you go back to the beginning of that supply chain you're like -uh, no thank you you released so much carbon at the beginning that 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 has completely drowned out your storage so yes i can agree you are piping a megaton per year down underground but mm -hmm. because of how you sourced where you got your biomass from mm -hmm. As far as planet Earth is concerned, you are not doing anything helpful. You are actually emitting emissions. So you can get this biomass energy capture and storage really wrong. I mean, if we wanted to get it really wrong, we deforest some tropical rainforest, grow an energy crop um, with some intense fertilization, and then use it to enhance soil recovery. I mean, that would be like gold star fail. That would be like <laughs> that would be the biggest F on your grade paper ever because you'd be like, uh, and no, we weren't paying attention to the whole carbon cycle bit. You have to go back to Corinne's lecture and be like, okay. Planet Earth cares not. <laughs> Planet Earth, <laughs> one place, it, this is what it's saying, right? So you have to get the BECs right. So some people are a bit cautious, actually, about the BECs, about mm -hmm. the BEC, part of the BECs, the biomet, like where you're getting that from. It could have, re if you get it wrong, if you incentivize it poorly, if you make poor policy, poor economic incentives to make BECs happen, you could have mm -hmm. people being paid for piping it down in one country. And in another country, you are driving food insecurity. You are, you know, encroaching on um, uh, biodiverse, you know, primary forests or, you know, or other primary ecosystems. So you have to be very careful with the biomass bit in order to get okay. this carbon removed which is why some people are quite cautious about it and very understandably again right um mm -hmm. and so you have to get that bit right so that's not that's not a tech problem that's a 
kind of governance and policy and incentive problem. You have to have good yeah. environmental governance and good smart policies so that you know where that when you pipe that CO2 down into the ground, you are getting the carbon removal overall that you thought you were. It's all about how that BEX is sorted. So that's why some people prefer direct air capture to BEX because they're like, well, direct air capture is straightforward. It might cost me a lot of energy. I might not be getting anything else useful out of it, <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. other than just carbon removed. But I know what I'm doing. I just need some low to zero carbon power and I need mm -hmm. it just to be taking the CO2 out of the atmosphere and I need it to be storing it and making sure that storage is secure. That's that's all. Does that make sense? Mm. So it's a bit, it's yeah. slightly bit more palatable actually from a policy point of view in some ways, but much more expensive because you're getting okay. no other. So it's all very it might even increase inequality across countries if you're not careful with BECs. Yes, you have to be careful with the uh -huh. food impact of BECs because it's anything, but that's anything to do with land use, right? So mm -hmm. you can say, well, all right, if we eat less meat, 20% less livestock rearing, you'll have loads of land become available to do some bioenergy on because one, you don't need so much grazing pasture and two, you don't even need so much land to grow the feed, the, the feed crops, the crops that just go straight to animals. So mm -hmm. you have pasture okay. that some animals graze on, and but animals are often also supplemented with feed, some kind of crop that's grown yeah. to go to feed, right? So like maize, like sweet corn. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then, then it depends on what country you're in and what type of animal, um, The say particularly like cows, you know, the types of cows you have and whether cows, you know, the intensively raised cows versus less intensive, you know, so there's, there's some subtleties mm -hmm. there, but... Some people argue, well, if you eat slightly less meat and slightly less dairy, then there's actually will free up a lot of land that you could then grow some bioenergy crops on. Other people argue, well, we could use some kind of waste biomass to mm -hmm. power bits because, you know, we generate a lot of waste biomass through agricultural wastes, forestry wastes, and even in landfill, there's a lot of biomass-based stuff in landfill, you know? Um, mm -hmm. So there's lots of smart ideas, but you have got to be careful None of them are simple and you have to think them all through a little bit. And I'd say that a bit like when we talked about electricity and different countries mm -hmm. would have a different mix of things. When it comes to carbon dioxide removal, again, different countries will have a different mix of um, habitat restoration, forestry, um, uh, or some of these like some of these more land based or nature based approaches mixed with maybe some um, cap carbon capture and storage ones as well. And you've just got to be a bit, um, bit nuanced about what's going on there. Okay, this this answer of yours has made me think a little bit about the cost of inaction. Yes, you know, a lot of times people say that oh, it's so costly to not use uh, fossil fuels, but it sounds to me that it's very very costly to actually keep using them and then try to remove them later. Yeah, so I find this an interesting. That's a really interesting point and a really interesting way of framing it. Right, so you often get this like. Yeah, I offer my like little thought experiment because unlike you, I am not an economist, right? So my, my <laughs> economics is like sub GCSE. Um, uh, but I always think if the cost of carbon was set by the cost, by what it costs to do direct air capture and storage, mm -hmm. that would sort a lot of stuff out straight away. That's a very interesting. Right? Yeah. So everybody's yeah. chasing in a kind of research and development, everyone is chasing a hundred US dollars per tonne of carbon mm -hmm. to do direct air capture. Right. And anybody who gets lower than that is just not including the rest of it where you have to pipe it and store it. Mm -hmm. So it, 
So they are, everybody is like kind of trying to go for the innovation so that the whole system comes in at a hundred US dollars per ton. Right. Now, if you made every ton of CO2 emitted into the atmosphere, a cost of a hundred dollars per ton. So other people would like try and cost carbon in terms of impacts, right? Which is a really, mm -hmm. really, really smart way of thinking about the problem. It really helps tight, but this is just a different way of approaching it to think, okay, well, if this is how much it would cost me to take that out, Right. So you think about your flight, your transatlantic flight to New from London to New York and back again, it, even just in economy and then think, OK, well, how much direct air capture do I have to pay for? And let the cost of direct air capture add to your price of your flight. Then you mm. ain't going to fly so much because it's prohibitively oh. expensive. It's, not for it sounds like we have a paper to do. <laughs> <laughs> or I think or, or I've just not kept on top of the literature enough this summer to find someone doing that paper. But it is a really it's an it's just an interesting thought experiment about mm -hmm. that kind of that kind of cost point. Right. Um, because um, as I'm sure Corinne will have set up well in her podcast with you guys, you know, the planet cares about cumulatively, like altogether, how much mm -hmm. we've how many dead marine organisms we dug up out the ground set light to and then released into the atmosphere basically right dug up that coal dug up that oil untapped that gas oh this is fun it's given us loads it's given us an ability you know to you know it's, there's lots of positives there's lots of reasons why we've done it it's transportable it's flexible you can store coal in a pile outside your house you know you can store oil in a drum and pop it on a, you know take it where you need it to go you know there's lots of really useful um features of fossil fuels it's just got one there's a couple of others but one main from a climate point of view massive downside is that we're you know gradually cooking ourselves slowly. <laughs> um, you know so like but and you, you know like you couldn't necessarily see that it's disconnected in space and time you know people who had these kind of innovations of the industrial revolution did not think you know what we really need to do we really need to start changing the global climate. That's going to be a fabulous trick. So we'll do all this. Yeah, you know, they weren't setting out to change the global climate. They were setting out to be able to move goods and people. You know, like, so it's um, it's just it's just the problem that we're stuck with, right? So the planet cares about how much of this fossil carbon we took out the ground and have thrown up in the atmosphere, and um, and so that kind of framing of well, how much would it cost to take a ton of that out? Would, you know, would really change your view of something being cheap as, you know, this is the same exercise that people do about impacts. You know, I think mm -hmm. there was a paper very recently, it was reported in the news about 3000 US dollars is the climate change impact to GDP, global GDP of your transatlantic flight. Right. right. So that's another yeah. way of framing it. It's just another idea of trying to deal with this sticky and messy problem of taking these global and decadal to, to centennial so like century time scale impacts uh -huh. and relationships you know like how planet earth works how the carbon cycle works that's even longer you have to start looking at thousands of years to understand that right um and relating that to our everyday lives and our desire to have shelter and heating or cooling and have power for entertainment and have a way to um you know transport ourselves and goods and services around right it's about you know that's the point of the energy system the point of the energy system is not to warm the planet up the point of the energy system is that human beings get to right entertain themselves and provide medical care for one another and light a building once it gets dark so they can study or relax or hang out and travel from a to b right mm -hmm. that's so we're all going about our lives you know and trying to improve the quality of those lives if for people you know who don't have access to energy etc and mm -hmm. it's just 
we have to decouple that from fossil fuels. That's what has to yeah. happen because fossil fuels has a big, huge, ginormous downside to it amongst some others. So, yeah, it's tricky, <laughs> right? It is tricky, yeah. My PhD, by the way, is on looking at how energy access uh, increases well-being. So I'm looking at the demand side of But that's things. an important part. You know, when we think about, you know, like, oh, do I want to, you know, perhaps I feel guilty about going on holiday to Dubai from the UK or to, you know, something like that. I think, oh, but I don't want to feel guilty. I want to go and have some sunshine. You're like, okay, but there are other people who have no access to refrigeration or light after dark, you know? Mm -hmm. So there's a kind of global kind of, the kind of justice and equality angle, right? So you've got to mm -hmm. increase energy access to a fraction of society for whom that is, you know, um, you know, very significant. How do you refrigerate vaccines? How do you, you know, provide transport to access for ma maternal health care, for example, you know, mm -hmm. um, these kind of things on one side um, with, you know, very kind of, um, I suppose, excessive lifestyles in terms of lots of, you know, the kind of like the demands and the luxuries that maybe we think we need or not, you know, and so it's tricky. It's tricky because it's a huge yeah. difference in human, human lives. But again, planet Earth, one rock hurtling around the sun at speed in space doesn't really <laughs> mind about those level of details it's like okay well you took a bunch of carbon that was happily buried underground and you got some fun out of it but here are the here's consequences <laughs> yeah, um, yeah yeah that's a good shout out to one of our episodes by dr salim Hug, where he talks about fairness and uh, justice in energy transition so thank you for that that's all right so I'm I'm going to well now I think uh, we're at the end of our uh, interview so I'm I'm going to ask you the easiest question so far, <laughs> Doctor Nemo, why haven't we solved climate change yet? It's about will. It's about political will. I think we have got the technologies, and so that's supply side technologies, but also demand side. So you know reducing inefficiencies if we're making this uh, energy. Um, uh, so you've got to reduce the CO2 footprint of the energy you make, but also you can help that by using less of it, right? And using it more efficiently. And so um, I think you started out with, do we have all the, the tools in our arsenal? I think the answer is mostly yes. Um, why have we not got there? It's the kind of systems and the infrastructure and that political will that needs to have that vision and drive that through and, um, and and deal with again it kind of goes back to what we just talked about about the, the disconnect in space and time of this problem you know it doesn't relate to your everyday needs you know you need to like feed yourself and pay your rent or pay your mortgage and get to school or get to your job or get to what you know like go and see your friends like you know, they are decisions you're making every day and it connects and it has an impact every time you make those decisions um to this big global problem and so that's why the political will is hard because politics works on quite short time scales and tends to appeal to people's quite immediate needs and pressures and this is kind of bigger than that so it's a bit hard to fit into that shape of that politics so i think things like we did in the uk with the climate change act where it's become a non-party political issue so all the parties signed up to it so it's not something to fight about from two different sides and be like does that make that that really moved that on in the uk particularly um in other countries you can see where it's still at that argument level in the us for example there's still quite not all the way through but there's still quite a tension of around climate change being a problem or not you know and there's definitely lots of discussions and arguments about how you go about transitioning fairly and justly to that decarbonized future how you deal with supporting um the economic development of that lowest the kind of that fraction of global society that has no energy access for example you know how you how you match and manage not just 
climate, but all the other um, kind of drivers and concerns that we have as a global society. Um, but yeah, so I think the tools are there. The tools are there. There's just, it's always seems to just roll to be problem number four or five on someone's list. And under the mm -hmm. intense kind of political decisions, problem one, two, always, you know, it's always problem one that gets dealt with, you know, like you see this at lots of different scales. Like I think, um, it's, it's there, even though I think something massive, like 97% of people in the UK or across Europe think climate change is a problem. How you deal with it, there's less convergence on precisely what you should take. And actually, obviously, it's going to be very nuanced and a mix of stuff. There's not like one thing we have to do. There's lots of things. Um, and people can get very frustrated, I think, about, well, if I do this, then what about people, other people I know in my life who aren't doing it? So the idea that it comes down to personal choices, you know, there's like 7 billion of people on the planet. If we all change our lifestyles, then it'll be fine. And it's like, yeah, but you exist within a system of institutions and infrastructures, right? You don't necessarily have the choice if you go to a shop to, to pick something that might be the lowest carbon option because option, it's just not available, you know, or... You know, you can't actually necessarily enact all those changes yourself directly. So it, you, I think making it all about individual choices is, is there's definitely a, a big space for that, but it's not the answer in itself. You also need those kind of structures. You need that, those kind of other policies and incentives to, to provide um, that shift. So it's about political will on lots of different levels to really um, accept the problem and push it push it up the agenda but I can see that that's hard to do because there's always something that has a more immediate priority you mm -hmm. know yeah in every in situation there's something more immediate because it's this slightly bigger scale problem and so right. um yeah yeah so for me I think it's that I don't think it's tech I think it's it's that kind of political will but at the same time that's not an easy fix itself either so mm -hmm. Okay, thank you so much for uh, giving us such a brilliant answer and such a such an informative podcast, especially the energy. Thank you so much. Well, that's great. It's been really lovely to talk to you, and so um, I hope I've, I hope I've clarified some stuff and not confused anyone with stuff. But you can, you know, Google's your friend. Most cases, as long as you check that your reputability of the website that you've landed on, um, but good reputable sources and a bit of googling, hopefully some search terms. If there's bits people are interested in more about, you can go and. Um, unpack and find out a bit more about. That was Dr. Nemwon, and I hope you enjoyed the chat. As she explained, we have the technologies available to us, but we really have to work out the economics to make them viable. The most important takeaway for me is that the cost of inaction is very high, and it's going to be terribly costly to go carbon negative. Are you convinced we should price carbon at the cost of removal? Let us know. And also let us know about this episode. Do you like it? Do you not like it? Was there anything you didn't understand? Get in touch on Twitter either by tweeting at Uni of East Anglia or at T-H-E underscore Y-U-S-H-I. That's at the Yushi. Or you can email me at a dot a-W-A-S-T-H-Y at uea.ac.uk Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast via Spotify, iTunes, whatever medium you normally get your podcast through. In the next episode, we will talk about finance and pricing. Till then, keep the hope.